Heavenly Father, you are so great. And the glory and the beauty of your son is so profound, so amazing, so incredible, Lord. That as we celebrate, even as our culture celebrates Christmas, help us to feel some of the magnitude of the creator and sustainer of the universe coming all the way down to where we are and taking on flesh and dwelling with us. That is unspeakably great and awesome. And I pray that you would remove every obfuscation, every barrier for our hearts to feel that reality the way it ought to be felt. And that as we look at this last sentence in the book of Colossians, would you, would you remove any barriers out of uh, the way for me and for my friends here to hear your voice and to see the glory of Jesus Christ afresh for this week and for every week from here on out. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do his will, and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. It is a desire which no man feels by nature, which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he is converted, but which some believers feel so much more strongly than others that they alone deserve to be called zealous Christians. This desire is so strong when it really reigns in a man that it impels him to make any sacrifice to go through any trouble, to deny himself any amount, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend himself and be spent and even to die, if only he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man in religion is preeminently, preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hardy, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory and if he is consumed in the very burning, he is content. He feels that like a lamp, he was made to burn. And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God has appointed him. Those are the words of J.C. Ryle, a pastor of the 19th century. And they are very, very precious to me. I want to be that man. I want to be that man. 
I want to be zealous for God and for Jesus Christ. And if I'm real with you, if I'm honest with you today, I desire that more than anything else in the world. I love my wife. I love my family. I love my life. But I would trade all of those things for this to be seen clearly in my life. I want to be zealous personally. I want to be utterly emptied for the glory of Jesus Christ in this world. And this is where we find ourselves today in the book of Colossians, the last part of this book, the very end of this book. We've been seeing in Paul's final greeting that he's been uh, sort of resurfacing these themes and ideas and concepts that throughout the last year or so we've explored in depth, God willing. Um, And we've covered a lot of critical things in that time. We've seen a lot of glorious realities. But the most important that is seen in the book of Colossians hasn't been covered yet as we've recapped in this final greeting. The most important reality in this book, rather than call it out, I would like to unpack it from the last statement, the last sentence, Paul's final words in this book. So if you have your Bible, please grab that and turn with me to Colossians 4, verse 18, the very last book, or the last last verse. Verse 18, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul is writing these final words with his own hands. Maybe he had somebody else write most of the the letter. Uh, His hands are in chains. That could be one of the reasons why. He's been in prison the whole time he's been writing this, obviously. And he's probably looking down at his hands as he writes this final greeting and seeing the chains. And he says to the Colossians, remember my chains. The question we want to ask today is why? Why would Paul say that? What's the reason for us to remember your chains, Paul? The Colossians already know that you're imprisoned. They know that you're locked up. Why call on these brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus to remember your chains? And why must we, Risen Hope, 2,000 years later, remember Paul's chains? The answer is central to this letter's entire purpose. So if we thought through this, we'd probably come up with a very short list of reasons Paul would mention this in this letter. Mention that they need to remember his chains. Um, Perhaps one of those reasons is that Paul just desires to be free. That he just wants to get out. He, he's been in there for a while now. He just wants God's mercy to come for him. Wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you want to be free? Um, who wants to be chained up? Maybe it's just him wanting to get out of jail. In fact, we already know that he's prayed earlier in Colossians 4 for an open door. Colossians 4, let's look at this text. It says, at the same time, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, is this a plea from Paul for mercy and freedom? Not at all. This passage says he only wants the open door to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to declare the mystery of Jesus And this isn't about freedom as an end in and of itself. It's about a means 
freedom being a means for him to do the very same thing that got him in prison in the first place, to preach the gospel. He's not asking for safety. He's not asking for mercy. He's not asking for freedom. He's asking here for them to pray that he would have clarity and boldness for the door to be opened. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Paul in prayer, in prison, or in prison rather, talking about the proclamation of the gospel. Look at Philippians 1.12, for example. So Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter too. He spent a lot of time writing letters in prison because he spent a lot of time in prison. Um, And he's talking about what he's been up to. And I want you to listen to what he says here. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So do you see his posture while being imprisoned? He's not worried about freedom. He's focused on the advancement of the gospel. And he's saying to the Philippian Christians, the gospel has advanced while I'm in prison. He says, he says in, uh, I think, 2 Timothy, he says, I may be bound in chains, but the word of God is not bound. That's what he's saying here. So what's his point? Why is the gospel advancing while you're in prison, Paul? How is that even possible? You are in chains. They've silenced you. And he tells us here, it has become known that my imprisonment is for Christ. I'm in chains because of Jesus. These chains are a testament to the value of Jesus in my life. So the reason Paul is admonishing the Colossians and us to remember his chains isn't just because of the chains. It's because he wants us to know why he was chained. My imprisonment, my chains are for Jesus. They're for Christ. That's why I'm here. And I want you to know that. This imprisonment is showing the world, whether we're talking about believers or unbelievers, it is showing the world the infinite value of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, effectively, my chains are for the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus to be clearly seen. And Paul doesn't, (laughs) and for Paul, this doesn't just mean imprisonment. Like, that's not the highest cost he could pay. And he knows that. Listen to what he says a few verses later in Philippians 1. He says this, verse 18. I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Then he says this, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So get this, even though he's confident about his deliverance, even though he's confident about that, his eager expectation and hope is not his deliverance in this text. It is being unashamed in the exaltation of Jesus. That's what his eager expectation and hope is. That Jesus Christ would be magnified in his body now as always. He says, with full courage, whether I live or whether I die, that Christ might be made glorious. So Paul is saying that his life, life or death, they don't matter to him ultimately. What matters to him ultimately is do I make Jesus look awesome? Do I make him look great? Whether I live or whether I die, I do it for no other reason than for Jesus Christ. Such that when you look at 
Paul's life, when you look at my life, he would say, I want you to see that I live for one thing. I burn for one thing, to please God and to honor and magnify Jesus Christ. He's zealous for Jesus. He's zealous for him. He's not worried about dying either. Think about this. He says, in death, though he loses everything in this life, though he loses everything, he forsakes everything, all of his material possessions, his friends, his family, all of that is gone when he closes his eyes and breathes his last breath. Everything in, in, in this world that he enjoys is gone. He loses it. Yet, to Paul, it is gain. Why? Well, he says that a few verses down. He says, my desire is to depart, to die, and to be with Christ because that for me is far better. In dying, he may lose all of those things, but he gets the greatest thing, Jesus Christ. And that's far better than anything in this world, far better than anything in this world this world could offer him. This isn't a suicidal tendency. This isn't an unnatural preoccupation with the next life. This is a man who is in love with Jesus Christ. He is in love with Jesus and he desires him more than anything in the world. He is controlled and dominated by his affections for Jesus. And so now this, is, this means his plea for us to remember his chains isn't just pointing to the chains in and of himself and his sacrifice that he's making. It's pointing to the reason for his chains, namely Jesus. And right now, we're really looking at the, the, the reason for this letter, the reason that the letter to the Colossians was written, the reason that the Bible exists, the reason that everything in the universe, every molecule and every breath exists, and that is for Jesus Christ. That's why Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. He wants them to know. You need to know how valuable he is, how worthy he is. And he, he, really, that, this letter is coming to us. All of the church is going to hear this. One central thing, that Jesus Christ is worthy of complete and total adoration. He's that worthy. So he's saying, I, I want you to forget why I'm here, why I've got these chains on. My imprisonment is for Jesus. It is for his glory and for his worth. And he makes this really clear in Philippians 3. Really clear in Philippians 3. I want to read this text, Philippians 3, 7 through 8. We've heard it before. Let's listen to it again with fresh ears. Whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, not only the gain that I had, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, in order that I may have Jesus. Paul desperately wants Jesus, and he's willing to give up anything. Do you see that here? If you don't see that in this text, I would humbly ask, if you don't feel the weight of that, that you read it, read it, read it, and over and over, it, until you feel it. It is so profound what he's describing here, but it is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You want my health? Take it. Just leave me, Jesus, Paul is saying. You want my job, my money, my income? 
fine, you can take it, but don't take Jesus from me. You want my freedom? You can have it. Just give me Jesus. You want my family and my friends, my very life? Take them to me. To die is gain. That's what Paul's saying. And if I can just be real with you, like I want, I want to be this man. I want to have that zeal flowing through my veins. I want, to be, I want to be as hungry as he is for the purposes of God. And I hope you feel that way. Even if it costs me my life, even if I'm consumed in the burning, I want to look back and say I was made to burn. That's why he made me. I was made to burn for him. That's why I was made. That's why God put me on this planet to be consumed with a passion for his glory. So how in the world does this happen? Does a man like this happen? How did it happen to Paul? How did he become like this? Think about it. This, this wasn't just a mediocre Christian who went off to some revival or Bible study or retreat, got lit up, came back and was really excited about Jesus. He hated Jesus. He hated Jesus. I know people say in this world, they don't like Jesus, they don't believe him, they don't hate They don't know him. It's 2,000 years removed. He walked the same streets as Jesus, probably saw Jesus preached. He hated Jesus. He was proudly an enemy of Christ and his followers, and he did everything he could to extinguish the memory of Jesus from Jerusalem, everything he could think of. So how does a man like that say words about the surpassing worth of Jesus, like he just said? How does he do that? Well, thankfully, the Bible provides us with answers. In fact, in the book of Acts, there are three different versions of the same, three different perspectives of the same exact conversion, this radical and beautiful look into Paul's massive shift from a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the name of Christ. But I want to look at a different text. I want to look at Galatians 1.15. And I want to look very closely at how Paul describes the event. What, what if, he, if he was trying to reduce the event to just a few words, how would he describe this? This is what he says. He, that's God, who had set me, that's Paul, apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So, God set, so Paul says, God set me apart before I was born. He called me by his grace. And he did this. His calling came to me by revealing to me his son. Revealing to me Jesus. And he was completely transformed by this. I mean, I'm talking like a night to day kind of transformation. Yesterday, he was voting to execute Christians, tearing them out of their homes, putting them in prison, separating entire families, did not care. He was doing the will of God in his mind. That was yesterday. Today, he's in love with Jesus. You don't get more stark than that change. There's not a, there's not a greater example of a stark, dramatic change than this. Think about it. After committing all of his time, all of his energy, all of his efforts to one goal, the extermination of every Christian in the Christian faith, in Jerusalem, now he only wants to talk about Jesus after seeing him. That was enough. To see Jesus was enough. And I don't mean physical eyes. He saw him with the physical eyes. I don't mean that. 
I mean that God opened the eyes of his heart so that looking at the reality of Jesus, he saw the most beautiful and glorious thing in the universe. The Bible calls it being born again. The Bible calls it regeneration. It's what it means to be a Christian. J.C. Ryle says this happens to every believer. Every believer has this. We see Jesus in this way. To some, for Paul, it didn't just mean Jesus is beautiful. I want to receive him as my Savior. It meant for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is Christian zeal. This is what it means to be zealous as a Christian. Paul, if he is consumed in the burning is content. That's not normal. That is not average domesticated Christianity that we're used to. That is not normal. Listen to how he puts it in Acts 20. Acts 20, he says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So let's stop there. Do you hear what God's saying? What Paul's saying that God is telling him? God is saying to Paul, they're going to throw you in prison. They're going to afflict you. This is going to happen. I don't want you to have a false understanding of this. You will be persecuted. But listen to Paul's response in the next sentence. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. I do not. I want people to see Jesus. I want to finish my course. I want to finish the ministry that he's given me. I want them to see Jesus and embrace him in the gospel. That's my life, Paul's saying. And that's it. It's the only thing that he wants. He says, if only, if only I may finish. And shortly after this passage in Acts 21, we see exactly how serious he is about this. He's on his way to Jerusalem. They hate him in Jerusalem. They want him dead in Jerusalem. And then we get this passage in, in Acts 21. And so I want you to listen to this counter in Caesarea and recognize that Luke, the person who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the person who wrote the book of Acts, the book that you read to see this text, Luke is one of the people pleading with Paul here. Listen to what happens. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in his hands. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This is Luke here. Luke, his best friend, who wrote this book saying, I know you feel constrained by the Spirit to do this. Don't do it. Don't do it, Paul. They're going to take you from us. They're going to kill you. And the reason they're saying that is because they've heard this story before. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. The Jewish leaders seized him and arrested him while he was in Jerusalem, and then they handed him over to the Gentiles to be killed. They've seen this play out before. And Luke 
And Timothy and Paul's allies are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Before we read Paul's response, I want you to feel the weight of that. What would you say? How would you respond? These are his friends, his best friends. And he knows what's ahead. He knows what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. He's not stupid about this. He's already been told by the Holy Spirit this is what's going to happen. What does he say? Verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to, die, to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That is what Christian zeal looks like. That right there is what Christian zeal looks like. Christian zeal says, I am ready. I'm ready. Not only to be imprisoned, but to die for Jesus. I'm ready for that. And Paul will be killed alongside Jesus. He will be killed for Jesus. How else would this man die? Think about it. Think about Acts 20. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. Finishing his course will be for Jesus no matter what. That was it for Paul. He lived for Christ. There wasn't anything out there for him that was more beautiful and more glorious. And he was going to die for Jesus. And we clearly see that as he's approaching his death. So 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul wrote. He writes it to Timothy, his friend, ally, his son in the faith, recognizing that his days are drawing to a close. He's going to die. And I want you to listen to the language that he uses in this text, 2 Timothy 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, I'm already going to die. I know it's, my time's come. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth forth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul says here, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. It's over for me, Timothy. This is it. It's done. I'm about to see King Jesus. And I want you to know on that final day, Jesus the Lord is going to award me with the crown of righteousness. But I want you to look at the criterion for how he's going to receive that crown. What, is, what, what, is the, what actually does, is the evidence for his receiving that crown? What, what does he need to actually receive it? What drove Paul to finish his course? It says here, this crown is awarded to all who have loved the appearing of Jesus. It is given to everyone who wants to see Jesus. Everyone who, wants to, who desires to see Jesus. See, Paul had seen Christ as infinitely worthy, as infinitely valuable. He had seen Jesus in his supremacy and he was completely gripped by what he saw, completely taken by it. And so his whole being was committed to seeing Jesus again. It's not, nothing you could give me is going to make me content. I want to see him again, face to face with the most glorious reality in the universe. And that's the main point for him writing this letter to the Colossians. He wants to communicate what he had seen. And this letter tells us what he saw. I don't know if you remember, earlier this year we looked at the Christ hymn. Six verses. 
in the middle of the first chapter, and they draw a picture of Jesus, the man that Paul is just adoring in this text. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I'm going to read this one more time before we leave this book. And I want us all to try as much as we can to look through Paul's eyes and to see Jesus the way he saw him. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. But Jesus Christ is the head of the body of the church. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, Jesus Christ might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. These verses here are Jesus Christ, our champion, our king, our conqueror. Not only is he the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, not only (laughs) is he that, Not only is he the eternal and immutable God incarnate, not only is he the head of God's family, eternal family, the church, not only is he preeminent in every single thing you can conceive of in your mind, but Jesus Christ loved Paul and he was his savior. He reconciled all things to himself by making peace by the blood of his own cross, Paul saw Jesus as a savior, his savior, his redeemer, his only hope in this world. That's how he saw Jesus. So I want you to listen to the words Paul uses to describe his relationship to Jesus in Philippians 3. And I want you to listen to the intimacy in his language. And ask like, do I talk about Jesus this way? Is he this way to me? The eternal image of God who created and sustains the universe by the word of his power. Do I talk about Jesus, my precious savior, like this? Paul says, Philippians 3.12, I press on to make it everything that belongs to Christ my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus made me his own. And this is the reason that Paul is driven by the worth of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, he saw not only his supremely glorious being, who Jesus is, but he saw that he had been bought with a price. So how else should he live? How else should you respond to this truth? Jesus had made Paul his own. Therefore, Paul does everything. He presses on to make Christ in Christ's purposes, in Christ's mission, in Christ's desires his own. Everything in his life is for Jesus. Here's the catch. This is where it connects to us. Paul isn't just a historical figure that we applaud and esteem and treat in reverence. Paul's life isn't just for us to spectate. He's telling the Colossians, remember my chains. 
But remember why I was in prison. I was in prison for Jesus. I belong to Jesus. He's telling them, not just so that they can have him in their thoughts, but because the, this fact that he belongs to Christ is true about everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Everyone who's put their faith in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. If your faith is in Christ, this, everything I've been saying about Paul is true about you. You were bought with a price. He paid for you. You belong to him. And let me tell you right now, there is no safer place, no more glorious place in the universe better than in the arms of Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus. Belonging to him and knowing who he is and knowing what he did to get you for himself, that is worth living for every second. And that is worth dying for when the time comes. This is why Paul says, remember my chains. This is why he says, remember my change. He's not being sentimental about his time in custody. Doesn't care about those things. He's not begging for freedom. He's saying, I want you to know why I'm here. Why I'm in prison. This isn't a game to me. This isn't a joke to me. I would die for this man, Jesus. I would die for him. He means everything to me. I've seen him and what I've seen in that man is worth dying for. That's Paul, and he's inviting us into this passion and pursuit. He's inviting the Colossians in, remember my chains, know why. He's inviting us in, he's saying, I want you to know why I'm here. He's calling out through this book that we would desire this kind of zeal for Jesus, this kind of passion for Jesus Christ, that Christ in his exaltation would be the defining reality of everything we do. Everything we do. And that we would ask this question, like, would, would we give him everything? Would we, get, would we lay down everything? Would we be willing to die for Jesus? And Paul, as he faces his own beheading at the hands of the Roman Empire, he recognizes that on the other end of the blade, he's going to see Jesus. He's going to see Jesus. That blade's going to come down, and I'm going to see my king. That's what's going to happen. And he's going to be carried into his presence. And this is all that he's ever lived for. So think about this. Let's just think about what he, what's going through his mind as he's about, as it's, however long he lived, is about to come to a close. Paul knows that there's more joy being face-to-face -face with Jesus than there is in anything in the universe. There's nothing you can give me that's greater than Jesus. It's far better, is what he says in Philippians uh, 3 or 1. He's going to see Jesus. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't a, a make-believe. This is reality. This is going to happen to him. There's a parable in Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the talents. And it's all about not wasting your life on this earth. That's what it's about. Not wasting your time on this earth. No matter what you're given, you run with it as fast and as hard as you can for the, for the name of Jesus. And at the end of the parable, the master, if you recall, if they complete their thing, they meet the master and the master says something to them. If they've, if they've done what they've done, what they should be doing with their talents, the master says to them, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
you have been faithful with a little, I will set you over much. And then stunningly, the master says, now enter the joy of your master. Be ushered into the unbridled gladness of the creator of the universe. And be ushered in by the champion who purchased it for you. So think about that. That blade comes down on Paul's neck and he's brought into the presence of Jesus Christ in that moment. And Jesus looks into his eyes and Paul's run hard He's finished his course, and Jesus says to him, well done, well done. My good and faithful servant, now enter the joy of your master. Those, those words dominate Paul's life while he's on, in the world. Those words, that's all he wants to hear. They mean everything to him. All I want is Jesus to say to me, after I die, well done. That's all he wants. And if I can be real with you, like this is my prayer for me personally and my prayer for you guys. Like, <clears throat> I want this more than anything. I want with Paul to, so Paul in saying this, doesn't, he doesn't just want us to know this is what he desires, Christ over everything else. The reason he wrote this letter, the reason he writes, remember my chains, and the reason he, he, he has done everything in his life and structured everything in the way, life the way he is, is he's saying that one line means more to me than anything else in the world. Well done, my good and faithful servant, is worth me dying for, worth me suffering a thousand wrongs. For Jesus to look into my eyes and say that to me, it's worth everything. And I want that to be real for my life, Jeremy, and our lives as a church. I want to hear our king say to us, well done. I've waited your whole life to tell you this. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I gave you a little. And now I'm going to set you over much. Now enter the joy of your master. The gladness with which God does everything in this world how he has pleased himself, enter that joy. Join me. So we're going to worship here in a few <clears throat> moments. And while we worship, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, you're invited to participate in this. You're welcome to participate. Um, but I want us to think about this. I want us to ask this question as we worship, as we think about what we're participating in when we take the bread and the juice, and we eat it, do we see Jesus the way that Paul does? Do we pursue him like we would if we saw it? Do we? Are we, as J.C. Ryle said, zealous Christians? Are we zealous for Christ? See, the blood of Jesus 
purchased so much more than just forgiveness, which is amazing and glorious. And freedom from sin, praise be to God. The blood of Jesus Christ, the cross, purchased for us more than comfortable American Christianity or comfortable any other kind of nation Christianity. It purchased us more than that. It bought for us every ounce of strength, every sight of Christ, every kind of delight in Jesus that we need to have him say to us at the, day, at the end of the day, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. So as you take the elements, as you worship today, think about him purchasing that for you and then do everything in your power to lean into it, pursue him. And, and really ask the question, you know, these elements should remind us of the infinite worth of Christ, but as you leave this place, ask him, do I see him like Paul did? I want to see him like Paul did. I want to see him desperately. Will we go from here and press on into Christ, into knowing him, into understanding him, into loving him as the treasure that he is? Will we let the reality of Jesus in this book, as we see it in this book, dominate our hearts? And will we plead with God every day, God, help me see Jesus like this. Help me see Jesus such that I will count um, my life as nothing next to the surpassing worth of the glory of Jesus Christ. No matter what it costs me, I will give my life for him. So as we worship, I want to just get our hearts in that posture. This is, what the re- this is the reason why he wrote this letter. This is awesome that God has, in his grace, brought it to a close in this, this book in, the, in this way. Um, get your hearts around this. Do I see Jesus this way? Do I see you this way? I want to see you this way. And plead with him to make it happen in your hearts. I want people, I really desire people to look at Risen Hope look at the people we have here and to say irregardless of anything else they might say about us for them for risen hope to live is Christ and for risen hope to die is gain let's pray Heavenly Father I am grateful for your mercy today. I'm grateful for your love for us and for your grace in allowing us to read this book. This book didn't need to be in the Bible. But you desire for us to see your son. And I pray that we would recognize that Paul having the Son revealed to him on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians is something we can enjoy every day in this book. We can look into the face of Jesus by reading the word, by pleading with you in prayer, Father, for you to transform our hearts so that we would look like this, that we would desire Christ over everything else. And so, Father, I know that this is something only you can do. But even now, as I say this, for my own soul and for the souls of my friends, I know that you are commending us the value of Jesus. You're commending to us the infinite worth of his name. And I pray that it would not um, pass or return empty to your hand, Father God. 
but that you would exalt and glorify your, your name right now by planting a seed in the deepest parts of our soul that will make us at the end of the day just like this. Counting it all loss next to the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. I pray this in the name of Christ alone. Amen.